I don't think you should drop everything that you're doing to try to be great at prompt engineering because that's the only way that we're going to talk to these models. You can become that good at writing prompts and it might yield you something in the long term. But for most people, if you look at this as like a, um, a new paradigm in how computing works, by no chance do I think this is a skill that we need to teach to, to kids in, at school. Um, you know, I think it will go away. I'm here with Linus Ekenstam, who is a veteran product designer of several startups that you've heard of, like Typeform. And now he's been working on bedtimestories.ai. And he's also been providing a leadership role online around tutorials for all kinds of generative AI projects. So Linus, thank you for being here on Building the Metaverse. Thank you. Can we start with Bedtime Stories? To tell me about that. Like, What was the idea behind it? What problems were you solving? How did you use generative AI in this? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and um, bedtime stories is interesting because I, I have two kids, uh, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and we read uh, rigorously to them uh, basically every day. Um, and me and my partner, we take turns, um, you know, bedtime, and um, we make up stories as well. When the books that we've read, you know, when you enter like, 50th time or 100th time, even though we're buying a lot of books, they still get quite warm. And we kind of ran into this problem where I tell a story and then my partner tells it slightly different. Uh, and that's kind of like how it got started. Um, and we were also playing around at the time, me and a friend, with uh, some of these new tools. So this must have been back in August last year, um, just toying with what's possible. And back then, I think the format of, of bedtime stories uh, kind of lend itself easier to, for, for these things to to accomplish because we did not have, uh, for example, ChatGPT or we did not have GPT-4, which are a lot more capable than what uh, GPT-3 was back then. Um, and so I guess the problem that we set on to solve is kind of like, how do we create random stories that are hyper-personalized uh, for our kids that can include stuff like morale or day-to-day -day things that they're going through, but we can use like, their experiences so instead of telling them the little red riding hood and, and trying like to have them understand the morale of that we could kind of bake in the same type of morale but like in an in an experience that they've already had uh, so kind of that's the the bottom of it or like the start and then when we started playing out like playing this out and starting to code and we kind of just ran into like endless possibilities um, because there's so much more that you can do uh, with this. Um, so we, I can, we just started to scratch, you know, top of the iceberg there. Um, and, you know, fast forward to December, uh, we had built something that we were quite, you know, happy with. Um, we see utilizing a, a, a few different generative AI models at that point, um, Dolly for images or stable distribution as well, uh, as well as like, uh, GPT three. And we, we just posted on Twitter. Um, and, and it took off. I, I, we had no plans really at, back then to like for it to take off. So we had nothing in place. Like it was just rough and, and we wanted feedback, but yeah, it just kind of exploded. Um, and I think we, we concluded quite early on that like bedtime stories was a way for us to kind of enter the market, kind of enter the space with something that's easy to, to talk about, uh, easy to understand. Uh, but it became clear quite early on, I think in kind of late August, early September, that 
I think we're kind of building a narrative company, like focusing on narratives more than just bedtime stories. Uh, I think it's also clear in, in our roadmap and what we're doing day to day. Um, but, but it's been very interesting because if you think about it, like there's a lot of parents in the world and there's a lot of caretakers in the world and there's a lot of kids. Um, and the best way for kids to learn is, is through stories and obviously like different ages, different types of stories, but it's a very powerful device. Um, and the hyper-personalization aspect of it is something that's kind of often overseen um, or overlooked um, because when humans work in a peculiar way, um, when something is personalized to you, uh, you, you kind of tend to care more um, and you kind of tend to uh, absorb more, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think like, there's a lot of people trying to do things in this, like obviously in this space, there's a lot of people trying to do personalized things, uh, which I think is good because like, obviously like we're, we're entering kind of a new era. So more is good. Um, but yeah, I think that that's it. Like in, in, in simple terms, uh, or laid, <laughs> maybe not so simple. <laughs> I think every parent can, can empathize and understand what you're trying to do. I, I, it, it takes me back to like when my kids were in the age range you're talking about, I, I used to do this thing with my kids where I take a Cinderella story, but we would like morph it into different versions. Like instead of the standard story, it would be like, but with a bake off or it's a fashion show is the contest that they go to. And my kids loved it, but the cognitive load of coming up with that material every night was really hard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's so tricky. Also, if you if you're like if you're trying to do that together with your with your partner, and you then you fill each other in, but then your kids they're just catching on to every little word. You're like, "Mom didn't say that. She told it this way." And I'm like, "Okay, sorry, I, I didn't know." It's neat how in the app you you've also incorporated the the text, the storytelling aspect, and you've incorporated story side by side. That that's something I've done in in some of these little game development demos I've done, where we feed like Chat GPT output into like image generators so that it has some cohesiveness from a narrative standpoint. How I, I got a couple of interrelated questions on that. So first of all, your market for this is really challenging because you're dealing with kids, first of all. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm just curious how you think about that because there is an unpredictability of generative AI elements. And the other question is just how challenging was it for you to produce the story output where the text content, the image content kind of hung together into something cohesive? We've done a lot of kind of like prompt engineering or, or kind of iterative uh, approaches to this. Uh, I think what we have now, uh, both in, in development, but, but also in production, it's uh, the best that we've had. Uh, we're not utilizing GPT-4 uh, at this point. It's just too expensive for what we're trying to do. Um, it, it does work better in some instances, and, and we will ship some stuff with GPT-4 that requires it. Um, but in terms of the cohesiveness, there's a, a lot of ways that you can ground the model to not go haywire. I think our biggest puzzle to solve is that we have an open-ended entry. Uh, an open-ended entry is not good uh, in terms of moderation, in terms of what could be asked for. Um, we obviously used um, the moderation filter from from OpenAI. There is such such a filter. It doesn't work really great. Uh, we built kind of our own uh, detection system. But the trickiest part is that w even though we're aimed at kids, but we have customers that are also uh, creating stories to self-publish, uh, if that makes sense. They, they want to use mm -hmm. 
us as a tool to create stories, and then they might use Amazon KDP or something to, to push these uh, stories online. Um, we also have publishers uh, that are looking to ways to kind of like go from zero to something um, and then kind of take that and, and rewrite it with actual writers. Um, so, so it's like we're standing on three legs, essentially. Uh, and, uh, and one of those legs are really hard to predict, which is essentially kids and parents. And the other two are a lot easier because like we're dealing with professionals that are trying to make money using the tool. It is hard when you're when you're building stuff for kids um, in in general especially when you include images or, or generated stories because right. we don't we don't really have fine-tuned control over everything that comes out which is dangerous and we know this like we're aware of it uh, we're trying to do our best to to mitigate but i mean the best thing would be if we had a stronger community that would self kind of self um, assemble and see like bad content and they would just filter it out by by flagging it or blocking it we have those features also built in. In your business model for bedtime story, I guess you also have the ultimate moderator too, which is this isn't exactly direct to child. This is a parent is moderating. So if they see something they don't like, they're just not going to use that or they're not going to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, we do have a full editor. So once you've generated a story, um, you can decide to manually edit anything in the story, even the images, uh, upload your own images. Um but, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we tried our best to to facilitate uh, this. Obviously, like it is generative, so there could be a lot of weird things. Uh, but also the way that I think our structure is set up is like you can regenerate a story basically a lot of times on even on the paid plan um, if you're not happy. So if you, you run into some problems, you can either just contact us or, or flag it yourself or um, uh, re-roll or like try again. Some people are using like regularly length prompts, like what you would expect. Uh, but then some people, they paste like a, a novel and they run with that. And, and we don't cope really well with that type of, of lengthy prompt input. We kind of reduced the number of characters that you can paste now. Um, but yeah, it's, still, it's, it's a challenge when you do open-ended stuff. And this is something that I learned early on at Typeform as well, like open-ended questions or, or it's, it's tricky. Um, and yeah, let's see. We might we might end up doing this kind of like clicky interface where where you decide a lot of things by using clicks, and we have predetermined uh, a lot of the things that we want to build the prompts with, and then we might just leave like a small portion of it open ended for you to play with. My mind goes to all of these places around how you could use your approach to narrative almost as as like a world building system. So, for example, like in Dungeons and Dragons, to think of maybe a different market. like in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm thinking as a dungeon master, it would be super cool if I could populate like a world building tool with everything about that world. I tell it about my own cities, the stories that have happened, and even use it as a way to track like the storytelling over time and then use it as like an assistant where I don't have to reteach it everything about, I don't have to like prompt it over and over again and go through that whole back and forth of teaching it again. I'm curious how you think about world building i mean it could be D D. it could be the bedtime stories that you're doing it could be all kinds of things it could be a person building a novel the tooling that we're working on now internally is it's gonna we're gonna radically change how the site looks for example um update the ux quite a bit because obviously the, the the way that it looks now is the way that it looked when we released it in december four months ago and we've learned a lot since then and uh, we also realized a lot of things that we want to improve uh gathered feedback from from the community um, and 
we're kind of introducing things that are akin to world building, but around characters in that world so far. So we're allowing you to create uh, characters that you can reuse. So we're putting like a a data item, if if you can call it that, that's a character. And then you can start building preferences around that character. And then you can pull that into your story. So when you're pulling it into the story, you don't have to feed anything to to the story builder about the character. So you can like, you can start creating series where you can make, um, because we can also make sure that when you do, let's say you, you're you creating a series of things and, you, and you're, you might want to do like, um, I'm just going to use my daughter now for, 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 as an example. So my, my, my youngest daughter, her name is Poppy and we might want to do a, a series with her, like learning the alphabet. And, um, then we might do different things. We probably might go to the zoo or she might go to the amusement park or she might go exploring, you know, the ocean on a boat. Um, and in each of those uh, chapters or new stories that we tell, we can make sure that um, the AI has knowledge about the previous ones. So we could continue down the path of like creating like a series of maybe 10 stories or 20 stories, but never when you prompt or when you create the next one, you have to like be indicative of, of, of the character you don't have to explain in great detail you just say the story is about poppy and you know it populates that and this time you know this time poppy goes on an adventure to the jungle and then it knows about the previous adventures and it knows about poppy and it knows, the, knows about her preferences her age and you know her high colors or <laughs> all of that stuff and this is pretty interesting uh, because it's like we're making these modular pieces that you can put together into the story um, and then obviously the story could be anything. It, it, we're, we're kind of trying to venture away from only doing bedtime stories to, to be kind of more of a narrative builder or a story builder, um, where we want to be as flat as possible as a tool and then allow the, the users or the members or the customers, what we're going to call them to, to kind of be creative with the tool. Now we've been the opposite. We've been very like we've directed you to do exactly what we want you to do. And we want to try to go the opposite direction. I I noticed in a recent tweet you made that you talked about template structures kind of layered over the prompts and you were discussing prompt engineering there. First of all, like one of the main lessons from game design, which is a field I'm pretty familiar with, is constraints are really good. Like constraints are what actually leads people to be more entertained, to have fun if when it's completely free form. I mean, listen, sitting down in front of GPT chat or chat GPT and just sort of like doing whatever, that's that's kind of fun for a little bit. But like if you want long-term engagement, constraints and goals and things like that, it, it feels like the template stuff you're talking about is sort of a path towards that. But so uh, I'm interested in that, but also the broader question is this this whole concept of like a prompt engineer, which people have been talking about now for months so what's your thought is that is prompt engineering is that a thing is that or will it keep being a thing this might either age very badly or it will age very well i think um the craze and hysteria that's been around prompt engineering and the way that um people are trying to pick up the skill to be like very like deep into it with with how to prompt uh it's nice that we have some people doing that uh I don't think it's a silver bullet. I don't think you should drop everything that you're doing to try to be great at prompt engineering because that's the only way that we're going to talk to these models. 
it's like a little bit of like looking at programming and looking at someone that, you know, goes in and, and knows, you know, is a very, like a very senior programmer that doesn't really care about the language, right? You can become that good at writing prompts and it might yield you something in the long term. But for most people, if you look at this as like a, um, a new paradigm in how computing works, by no chance do I think this is a, a skill that we need to teach to, to kids in, at school. Um, you know, I think it will go away. Um, I think we, we might, we might know some of it, but also I think the, the, the models themselves are going to like improve the way that they are getting queried. It's like, we're looking at the very early way to write HTML or CSS. And we look at like how CSS or HTML looks today, or we look at like assembly type code. Like no one really types assembly type code anymore. Everyone is like coding in an abstraction far, far away from the silicon. And right now we're interacting with AI very close to, to the model, like as close as we can get without training. Um, so I think we'll draw those parallels. Then it's like, okay, you know, we don't, we don't teach to code in <laughs> ones and zeros. We don't teach assembly, uh, code to, to, to make a website. Um, so by that, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of like precursors, a lot of like layers on top that makes it easy to just get what you ask for. Maybe there's like a Adobe made this really well in Firefly where you can prompt away a bit, but then there are some settings similar to like how you do camera settings. Like I think this, we'll see more of that where things are doing secret stuff behind the scenes and then you don't need to care about that. Like shooting in automatic on a camera. <laughs> All right. So prompt engineering, I guess, good work if you can get it, but don't count on it sticking around. It's, it's uh, maybe an artifact of the current state of the market. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I mean, maybe an artifact maybe, like this, there will, there will probably be like prompt engineers. So like people that can speak AI, they will be in demand for some, for some period of time. And, and they might be in demand for a long run as well, but I wouldn't count on it being like the new white collar job. Like everyone is now a prompt engineer. Um, I don't think so. Maybe my prediction is very wrong here, but like something tells me that we're smarter than this. I, I think um, we're going to have some product designers out there who are going to figure out how to alleviate the need to trick prompts into doing what you need. Although I've had fun doing it myself. I got a reputation even in my own company where someone is like, oh, I can't chat GPT says it won't it won't give me the answer to this. And I'm like, just wait a second. I, I bet you almost anything I can get chat GPT to give you the answer that you're looking for. Uh, yeah. The jailbreaking <laughs> is interesting. I mean, they are tapping those holes though, but like, I mean, again, I think we're going to end up with more fine tuned controls in the end, like whatever happens, you know, with the, with the current state is going to change. And, you know, maybe your preferences uh, is different from mine, for example, and you want your model to do more things that I don't want my model to do. And those type of fine tuned controls, I think we'll see pretty soon on personal level. And then, you know, at a greater scale, we might even see like different countries having different rules uh, because obviously we live in a large world where freedom of speech is different in many places and uh, local laws are different in many places too. So if we're making this type of technology, it needs to kind of like adhere to locality, but also to personality things preference wise. So I think it's going to be interesting. It's not universal. It's not like the calculator that works exactly the same way everywhere. Um, and, th and this is going to be tricky to, to solve, but I think we need to come together and kind of solve it. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, it'll be fun while the gamer in me loves uh, trying to figure out how to jailbreak things. In, uh, in yeah, GPUs. I agree. I mean, it's so much fun. And all these things that people have been doing, like the Dan or whatever, I just like it. It's just like, okay, here we go. It's like the iPhone again, like the pineapple jailbreak. I love it. <laughs> Can we zoom the camera lens out a little bit? So I, I'd like to go back to some earlier stages in your career before all this generative AI stuff came about. Like you mentioned one lesson earlier around what you learned with Typeform around constraints and, and like totally freeform stuff doesn't always work. What are what are some of the biggest learnings you've had from your career as a product designer? Well, um, hands down, talk to the people that you're building for. <laughs> it might sound trivial, but like if you're, if you're building something or designing something and you don't speak to the person using it, then what's the point? Like you're not designing for yourself. If I were designing for myself, I would speak to myself, right? Uh, ask myself. It's. I think it's easy for a lot of designers, builders in general, to to be afraid of speaking to people um, because they're afraid of being told they're wrong. Um, but if someone tells me that I'm wrong, I couldn't be happier. Um, it just means that I get an idea for where I should go uh, instead, where I should skate on the ice. Um, so I think that's the biggest, biggest learning. And I think... I, I, I came into Typeform, I was, I don't know, it's like, what, um, seven, seven, eight years ago, something like this. And um, before that, I think I was a bit more like centered around designing stuff that I liked. And then obviously like building for a large crowd and you learn a lot and you grow a lot. So I wasn't completely uh, <laughs> scared of speaking to people back then, but like, I think yeah, if I had to like, give you one thing that's very like principle based it's that and then when it comes to the craft itself like designing it's like 98 percent of the things that you design never sees the day of like the day the light of day right so we do a lot of things that just like ends up in a drawer somewhere but it's the same in pretty much all creative fields that's how you find the stuff that's good i think typeform it's a great example of taking something that's extremely dull and boring like forms online and making it joyful almost like you want to complete filling giving away this data uh, which is in in itself quite an achievement <laughs> um i think a lot of people just said like it can't be done that way people won't like there won't be completion rates will be bonkers like you know we'll never get anyone to complete more than a few steps and then we've just poked holes in that saying like oh, well here's a 78 question form with like 60 percent completion rate not even like a, a single sign-up form with like four four uh, inputs in it could have the same kind of um, completion rate. So uh, it's just sometimes you just need to go against what everyone thinks is right and then try. You might be lucky. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting how your experiences actually really parallel some of my own findings in the world of game development because, first of all, I, I think it's helpful to to design games for audiences that you understand reasonably well but at the end of the day you have to hear from your audience because as a game developer you're almost never really just building for yourself uh, there's exceptions to every rule in in game development by the way but so there's people who are going to do the exact opposite of everything i'm saying here and it turned out fine that's games but um i just found that getting my product out in front of players was really important 
uh, like we built a game, Star Trek Timelines. We, we actually did five completely different versions of the game and people kind of hated the first four and then they really liked the fifth. So if we had tried to go to market with the fourth one, we would have really failed early on that in a bad way. Um, but also just sort of this idea of things come up and you don't use everything. I remember when we finally shipped our Star Trek game, we must have cut 75% of the product. It either wasn't good, it wasn't ready. We just couldn't make it work in the cohesive um, world of the game. And some developers on the team were not very happy about that. They're like, oh, I worked on this feature and spent months on this thing and, and it didn't make it in. And, and I, I get that. Like you want to see your feature get in front of people. But the game worked, I think, partly because we did a good job of cutting, which was the polar opposite of another game that I did where like virtually everything everybody worked on made it into the game. Uh, we actually spent like twice as much money building this game and it was far less successful because we tried to accomplish too much in it. So I guess these are universal rules of startups in design that that everybody should think about. Yeah, I think so. I think it's important to... It's another good lesson, right? It's, it's people think it is about what you're adding to your products or what you're adding, like in terms of you know, just if we add this one feature, if we just add this, now this is what people want. Uh, I think it's more about removing. Um, just be very rigorously in what you keep. Like the stuff that you have in 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 your product should really mean something. The stuff that's there should should have high use, should bring value. If it's if it doesn't, then just take it away, just cut it out. Um, less maintenance, less technical overhead, less stuff that needs to work together. Uh, and if you can keep people happy and even maybe even get them more happier because the product is more aligned to the problem that you're trying to solve or, or the use case that people have for your product, then, you know, that's even better. Uh, like the ultimate thing really, when it comes to a good product is Google search. <laughs> it hasn't changed. <laughs> well, the interface hasn't changed. The result side has changed slightly, but like, if you think about like, how much they could have added to Google search, given that it's like the home for pretty much anyone that uses the internet. It's like the start, like the starting point for everyone. Um, and they haven't, it's just a search engine. Then they built a lot of other products that, that are doing really good things. Uh, maps, like Google Maps is a phenomenal product, um, but they didn't put maps into search. They were very, like, they've been very good at like putting things in, in different buckets. I think maybe sometimes um, people that are building startups or doing tools, they, they should think more about that. Like, why does everything have to be in one product? Typeform actually has done a good job at kind of not bloating actual Typeform with new stuff. They've built a few tools that are you know, webvideoast.com. It's an interesting one that focuses on video. Um, they have like another one that focuses on asynchronous communication called Relayed, Relayed.ai. Um, and they haven't baked this into Typeform. But they're all products that are derived from Typeform, that are owned by Typeform, that are run by Typeform engineers. So I guess here's the big question to bring it back now. How, how is generative AI going to change the work of the product designer, the product manager in, in this kind of startup experience? I think first of it's going to change. Um, <clears throat> it's going to change a lot of things. It's going to change for pretty much everyone that's a knowledge worker, I think is going to have to reconsider their workflows. Um, and this is not in a bad way. I, I'm a very optimistic, a cautiously optimistic about generative AI or, or large language models in general, or any kind of improvement that we're doing in, towards kind of getting to AGI. 
Um, we're, we're, the, it's interesting. So every, everything's going to change. How much it's going to change? Um, that's for us to see. I think if we look close now, like near term, um, tools are coming out for my workflow, for example, as a product designer that will make my life a lot easier in terms of like, I won't get creative blocks. I will be able to go from a white canvas to something really fast. It, it will be like an idea slash like inspiration machine. Because currently, if you're a designer, you're looking for inspiration, you spend hours to find and curate and, and look at things and patterns and stuff that's working and maybe things that are just beautiful, but you're trying to make it more functional. Um, and this takes a lot of time. And obviously, this is also part of what makes a good designer to try like connecting dots. I think good designers are really good at like going outside of you know screen design and they go into the physical world and they kind of explore how certain things work in the physical world. But AI is just so much more capable of taking my ideas from just like something I have in my mind, I write it down and I can get something back. It's almost like a sparring partner in that sense. And it can challenge my assumptions. I can ask it to be putting on a different lens, ask it to look at it from trying to poke hole in things. Like this, this is where AI gets interesting for me. Like just having it perform my task or generate stuff for me. That's kind of like the fart app face of AI, I think, or like the beer drinking app. You know, when you had a iPhone and you tilted it and you could fake drinking a beer and we're going to have to go through this phase and everyone is going to have to go through this. Like, it's just natural. We're getting this new technology. We don't really know what to do with it. But for me personally, I think it's like, as that kind of like a creative sparring partner that you can feed with a lot of information and then just ask it to kind of like, tell me I'm wrong and why am I wrong? And then you just get more perspectives. If anything, I think. AI will be very good at bringing nuance back to things. We live in a very polarized world. It doesn't matter if you live in the West or the East, everything is polarized. Um, and I think AI is like a, a net positive on the nuance side of things. I mean, everyone is a critical thinker. We just need to have the right tools. Yeah. Elaborate on that a little bit, because it, it seems to me that uh, like, at least with the current state of chat GPT, a, a lot of the responses it will give to sort of more controversial subjects t tend to be pretty anodyne. I, I guess it's a big difference. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's, it's a bit different between 3.5, like chat GPT 3.5 turbo and GPT four GPT four is by no means, uh, an end, an end game here. They've, they've managed to fine tune it better. Um, if you ask certain things, there's plenty of threads on this on Twitter as well, but if you ask certain questions to 3.5, it will give you maybe a leaning answer to either one or the other side of the spectrum. And if you, if you ask the same question to, to GPT-4, it will try to settle on giving you context on whatever spectrum there is and kind of lay that out in front of you. Still up to you to make a decision whether you want to listen to one or the other. Um, I think th th this type of, we, we don't have this in many places. We don't have this in news. We don't have this in, in media consumption in general. We don't have this in public channels where, where there's always something driving or always something like creating a need to go in, into a specific group, even, even as creators, like I can't break out of my, even if I want to talk about other things now, I can't really talk about non AI stuff because no one really comes for that. So I'm kind of stuck talking about AI, even though I have a lot of things to say in other matters. 
I don't mind. I don't mind, but like this happens to newspapers. This happens to publications. It happens to other writers, where you know that some of the bias that we see is also forced by the way that we kind of consume and create content. Um, so I think hopefully with these tools that are they don't really have a mind of their own. They don't really think. They're just looking at a, a large amount of data and then surface that data to us. We have an opportunity here to to create nuanced systems. And if they're not nuanced enough, we should focus on making them more nuanced and less biased and more open. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Maybe there's a maybe there's a case to be made for it, even elevating empathy for other points of view. I'll, I'll give an example, uh, and I don't want to get into the specifics of it because I'm hoping it kind of goes away soon. But like there was there was so, this. Um, there was this content that that went around recently that was signed off by a lot of notable people, and I went to GPT four, and I was like, "Why would Elon Musk <laughs> uh, sign off on this thing?" And I gave it like the text of what it was, and uh, it and you know I had a couple of opinions coming into it about why it it told me a few interesting additional reasons, like okay, well here here's why from this individual's point of view, they might see it this way. I was like, okay, that was interesting. I didn't actually think of all the reasons. I actually still kind of ended up thinking that I was more or less right <laughs> going into my assumptions, I guess I have to admit. But uh, it made me think about it a little bit more, be a little, I'd say a little less judgmental and maybe open the door to, okay, well, maybe maybe there's some other things at play here that I'm not as focused on that that he is. And and that's okay. Like I, because I, you, you mentioned the polarization. If, if we can use some of this technology to help understand perspectives and how they vary, that could be a powerful way for people to come together and things that, that they might otherwise disagree about a lot of other things. Yeah. And I, I wholeheartedly think this is what these tools needs to do. And, and we need to design this into these tools. I be, but by the end of the day, there are tools and uh, we are creating them like, with our knowledge uh, and people that are way, way, way smarter than me are, are working on training these systems. And then we have humans trying to guide and, and, and steer and align these systems. Um, maybe that's something that a lot of people will work with in the end, depending on like how real time these systems become and what type of data they need to consume. Maybe, you know, AI aligners is kind of like a, a job of the future, but I hope not because it's a very boring kind of long-term job. But if, if we're just thinking a bit, a bit sci-fi here and we go like, you know, if we just look back 15 years ago, a lot of the things that we take for granted today did not exist. Uh, and we think they're so integral part of, of our daily lives that we couldn't live without them. So then it becomes quite tricky to look 10, 15 years into the future, given that we're on a exponential curve of technological advancements. So how do we, yeah, it becomes really tricky. So it's hard to foresee. So maybe aligners are a thing in the future or they're not because we solved it. But uh, so far our biggest bet on like what actually works on aligning the untrained model is human feedback, um, which is kind of astonishing. Well, I mean, there's gonna be all kinds of jobs that we're not even thinking about right now. Like if you had asked 20, 20 years ago, is there gonna be a social media manager job? People would have been, first of all, you wouldn't even be able to conceive of what that job is because social media, we had like forums and bulletin board systems and I guess there were community managers starting to emerge, but now we have like a, social, a whole bunch of social media jobs. At companies. It's crazy. It's crazy when you think about it. 
it actually is crazy. And then when you also, you know, when you wrap your head around the fact that, I mean, but both of us have grown up alongside the internet. Um, we've seen, we've kind of like been pacing alongside with it. We've gone through the first dial-up. I had a dial-up modem, 28 KB. And I mean, if I, I even have the sound, like I can remember, play back the sound whenever I want. And it's like just poking these many memories into my head. And then if someone, you know, if you, if you think about that, but then you look at like where we are now, the, the, the things that I've seen in my lifetime, like 35, 36 years now, um, my kids will see maybe a thousand times more progress than I've seen. And it's so hard for me to comprehend, or it's even more, it's like 10,000, even a hundred thousand. Just looking at like the compute increase that, that, um, Jensen Huang spoke about during the NVIDIA keynote. And we're looking at like, um, when they trained, well, 11 years ago, when they trained uh, ImageNet and look at the compute that it took to train GPT-4, it's a million X more compute in 11 years, a million, like a million X more compute. E even phones, right? Phones have an enormous amount of neural compute and graphics capability that they didn't have. like Apple shipped a like over a zettaflop of compute just last year on phones. So like the amount of neural computing is going to is going to be staggering and and I think we could expect that will only improve by orders of magnitude which kind of leads to the next question I have for you because you mentioned AGI earlier. Uh, so I'm I'm going to bring it back and I saw you posted something recently that that basically said the age of information is kind of over. Now it's going to be the age of intelligence, which I which I thought was a really interesting way to think of things. I guess let, let's start there. What did you mean about that shift? How profound is that? And then tell me what the heck AGI really means anyway. <laughs> but I don't know if anyone really has the yeah the, the, what it means. Yeah, let's start. Let's start with what I think is happening. So. We, we've kind of lived in this information age where uh, we'll look at Google. So Google is a great library. Um, it's a library where everyone that's using Google has to be a skilled librarian. Like you have to know how to use Google. You have to know how to search, how to be good at searching. And then what shows up is um, a mix of information, paid ads, uh, scams, viruses, this bunch of shit showing up. So when you hit something that you think is right, you have to be a skilled curator. You have to like look through and sift through and find the information that you're looking for. Um, great, great, great thing. But looking at what we have already with GPT-4 or GPT-3, 3.5, we're starting to see inklings of what, what the next big thing is. And it's not information. It's, it's kind of some synthetic intelligence. Uh, whether or not we want to call it intelligence or not, but um, all of a sudden we can we can inquiry in, in natural language, and something we don't know really it, it's an it, but it, it it gives us what we want. And if this is kind of the calculator of computers, we can just imagine like the, if we draw a line from here where we'll go, and so it becomes less about having this interweb of of like intricate web of, of information where you have to look things up and you have to you know be a librarian or curator and all this stuff. It becomes more about you being a, a seeker or like uh, good at asking questions, good at talking to an entity 
good at like digging around uh, and this entity does the hard work for you. And now we have like a handful of companies trying to do these transformers, like uh, general purpose transformers um, that are basically just guessing the next character in line. But what comes after this? We don't know. We don't know like what the progression to AGI will look like. Will it comes? Will it come from this type of work that we're seeing being executed now? Or will it come from something else? It's really hard to to also kind of predict. But if anything, I think we're we're seeing inklings of a, of a new era, and we can't go back. Like if you think about it, like I'm I've been googling my entire adult life, even like my teenage life, and if I think about that, comparing to what my kids will be doing in a few years' time, and even now when they're speaking, like most of their interaction with technology is through voice. They're speaking to the home home speaker. They're they're asking for it to do things in the house, turn off the lights, turn on the lights, play music, you know, call mom, whatever. Um, and then looking at what I've been doing, like writing into this text box for 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 a good twenty five years, it, it feels like I've been using smoke signals. It feels like I've been. It, I'm just looking back in my. Did I always waste twenty five years of my life doing this? Like how many hours have I spent googling? I don't want to know. Because if I, if I knew that I could have spent those hours kind of reading or, you know, being on a beach or riding a bike, I'd probably be a much happier person. But it just, and I think it's weird living through a paradigm shift like this. I didn't live through the industrial revolution, but if I did, I would have probably said the same thing. You know, it's so weird that we did this manual things and the, now electricity came around. The only difference is it took a long time for that, like to change atoms compared to like changing bits. Um, and with kind of, Back to the question, what I think, you know, what will happen? Why is it intelligence and not information? Um, I think in, the information will still be there and we will continue to produce information, but the way that we will interact with technology will go from like the librarian point of view to more like, you know, other entities will do the librarian part for us and we will just inquire and be more free-flowing, natural language. Uh, it's hard to really understand how fast these things are going to change. Even me, who's in the thick of it, with a, you know, with with this fire hose of like information just you know, pointed at me day in and day out. My habits have definitely started to change. So I've gone from search being the first place I go to look up information. To I I still certainly use search because you kind of have to the the way the language models work is you have to see if it was hallucinating and all that stuff. And you, you kind of have to cross-reference, but you can go to chat GPT and pose it a problem. And I get to the kind of information I'm looking for much more rapidly because I'm able to kind of explain the problem I'm working on and it'll surface some interesting things. And then I'll go and search based on what it told me about. So interesting dynamic cycle that I'm going through there. And it also seems to me that some people critique these language models on the basis that, oh, it's kind of just recycling things that humans already know. It's not like creative, like creativity is also one of those words. It's, you know, along with AGI and intelligence and consciousness, really hard to define what people even mean by creativity. When it tells me established practices within a product or a field, like that's actually good for me to know. Like if, if I'm designing a product, I want to know how people have solved it before. And if I just happen to use a solution that someone has come up for, like 
that's a good thing. Like that's a that's a feature, not a bug. To we're me. not in the we're not in a position yet where these things are helping us to solve hard science problems. Like we don't see researchers or scientists in in labs using these to kind of like come up with new theories, right? But it doesn't really matter yet. Like if it were, if it if it was doing that now, I would be afraid that we've kind of passed the point of entered kind of entered you know AGI territory. <laughs> so I'm I'm quite happy that we're still they're still quite dumb in that sense. But then like people saying that they're just repurposing, I, I don't know if that's true either because you can ask it to do weird things that I've never never encountered or or mi- mi- ma- ma- throw things together that are make, makes no sense and actually makes sense when it does it. So I think there is definitely creativity in there, but it's derived from the human that's using the tool. Like the person that is prompting for something, that's also part of the creative part, right? It's, it's not the it's not the tool itself that's coming up with these things. It's someone asking for it to do weird things. Mm-hmm. Well, of, of course, in science, we've got some pretty astonishing discoveries, maybe not coming directly out of language models, but like AlphaFold being able to yes. essentially figure out the human proteome and predict it accurately. Yes. Yeah, I think exactly. So, sorry, but uh, yes, for sure. And I, I mean explicitly language models in this case. Uh, we're not having ChatGPT in those. It's not ChatGPT that figured out the protein. Although, although I... You know, I gotta believe there's there's a scientist out there who uh, has already discovered, in or at least was brought to an interesting idea because of a chat session they had. So, if you're that scientist, I want to hear from you. I really want to hope this, and I, I think yes, I think probability of that is high. Um, but I, I would like this to be. Imagine this in, in every research lab right now in the world. If if this was true that these models were actually helping pushing science forward. That would be so fucking cool. Um, you know, or what if we, you know, what if we could ask it stuff that's like, that, that, that's been puzzling humans for centuries and they actually come up with a good answer or like help us find the answer for these things. I think that would be cool. What a time to be alive. Uh, there's, there's so many, yes, there's indeed. So many things we're going to discover and science, medicine, creativity, philosophy. So it'll be humans working with these technologies. So I, I think for me, that's a tip. Yeah, they're, they're tools. I think by the end of the day, they're tools. So I think I really want to like strike that chord as well. Like um, they're not sentient yet. <laughs> sentient, sapient, more words that get really hard to define for a lot of people. But uh, but maybe, maybe maybe we'll believe it when we see it. It'll be it'll be that one of those kind of things that one day we'll look at it and it'll be like, well, a chess program wasn't sentient. Chat GPT doesn't seem to be, but something else is. <laughs> Actually, that like just but just touch on that quickly. Like it's interesting that you know chess. We thought chess was going to die when when Kasparov got beaten. But that didn't happen. So I don't think we should worry too much now either. I think humans are very moldable. We're adapt. Like we, we are we are here. We're the dominant species on this planet. We will adapt. I think we'll figure our way out to be on top. And and we still will be because all of these technologies, these machines are just part of the extended phenotype of humans anyway. So this is part of being <laughs> yes. human is is creating these things and incorporating them into our experience. So Linus, I want to thank you so much for being on Building the Metaverse. 
Um, we'll put in the show notes links to your content, your Substack, your Twitter feed, so that everybody can learn a little bit more about all the work you're doing on bedtime stories and, and teaching people about AI. But thanks so much for being here. This has been an awesome conversation, and I'm sure people learned a lot from it. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.